0: From the Platform, my name is Tom Peel, and thanks for joining us. Uh, This first episode is about how we talk about what we talk about. This podcast is for the Christadelphian community. We are considering challenging topics in the context of the Christadelphian community as a group that were formed in the 19th century dealing with 21st century issues. And as I said, this first episode is about how we talk about those things. Uh, We're not going to really approach any of the challenging subjects. We're going to think about what is the most Christ-like and biblical way of talking about these things, uh, approaching these things, and creating a platform for these things. So, to start with, I'd like to talk about the spectrum of ideas. Often when any one challenging topic is approached, there is a spectrum of responses from a number of people. Uh, it's very hard to be unified on these things, as there are many things at play, emotionally, socially, in terms of uh, your backgrounds, your experiences. So any subject is going to generate a spectrum of responses. Now, in, uh, in the world, as we'll call it, many political and social sciences categorise this spectrum as liberal Conservative or left and right wing. But is that the best way to deal with issues within the community? Should we label responses to these issues in this way? Because there are concerns that this leads to labeling people rather than responses, and it has the potential of polarizing the community, as it seems to do in the world with party politics. Uh, we're living in a very divisive time. The internet has fueled quite a lot of division. Interestingly, Tim Berners-Lee and the foundation of the internet, the idea was to uh, unify people, but it is something that has created algorithms that separate people. So how should we deal with this spectrum? Uh, first, let's take a step back and remember that context is always king in these situations. The words conservative and liberal are generalisations. They don't mean anything specific when used without any qualification. They mean different things to different people in different contexts and so won't ever fully convey the nature of the topic being discussed. Uh, It is important, if we're going to use these words, to only label the responses to a specific topic and not the people holding those views on that specific topic. We need to make that clear when starting any conversation within an ecclesia. Because a real problem arises when people use the words liberal and conservative in a loaded way. For example, don't listen to her. She's one of those liberals. That doesn't lend itself to a fruitful conversation. And remember, many people take a conservative view with respect to one topic and a liberal view with respect to another topic. Something viewed as conservative by one society may be viewed as liberal by another. It all has to do with the context of the group. Now, I'd suggest that the liberal conservative language is probably already being used colloquially amongst members in our ecclesias um, in private conversations, and it may be important that we reclaim the definitions so as to use them in their proper contextual sense. Used in the way I've suggested as a spectrum of responses rather than labelling a person It can be very useful to understand more about what a certain perspective is founded on in general terms. Rather than using it to polarise and create opposing tribes, it can be used to understand the background and the foundation of another person's perspective and therefore we can understand what is important to them. This is known as the principle of charity. It's all about talking to your interlocutor or the person with whom you're discussing things with, seriously. Don't misrepresent them. This is called making a straw man, arguing against a caricature of their argument rather than their actual argument. Don't just disagree with them. Try to find out why they hold such a belief. What is their motivation for holding that belief? What other data does that belief explain? Don't assume they have made a silly mistake. If you feel your interlocutor has made a silly mistake, find the best possible version of what they might mean, not the worst. Their idea often comes from a legitimate place. It is better to try and understand where the idea comes from than to react against it. Be a good listener first, then present your ideas as a personal opinion to be considered and reflected on. In the next part of this podcast, we're going to look at something called the moral matrix. This is a tool to help us understand that legitimate place where people's perspectives come from. This is a clear scriptural principle. 2 Timothy 2 verse 24 says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What I find really interesting about this verse is that it says it is up to us to correct with gentleness but it is up to God to lead them to a knowledge of the truth. We cannot force feed people. Similarly, Titus 3 verse 1 says we should be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Okay, so this section is based on something called Moral Foundations Theory. It's described in a book called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics by Jonathan Hyatt. It is a very useful theory to help understand how we can have such a spectrum of perspectives in one community and why those perspectives find homes more comfortably in some ecclesias rather than others. Now, this may sound quite foreign to many of you, but I'd like to reassure you, it is quite simple, and if you bear with me, we'll get round to how it works alongside Bible teaching quite neatly. Essentially, it's a new tool to talk about ideas we are already familiar with. New tools are used all the time by our community, whether it be concordances, online Bibles, or other ways of reframing Bible topics to help a new audience understand and apply fresh thinking to those who are already well-informed. Now, the simplest way to understand moral foundations theory is to understand that it's like moral taste buds. One way to understand where a perspective comes from is to understand what moral taste buds it touches on. So it has been shown that we have six moral taste buds, And we use some or all of these six moral foundations, whether we realise it or not, to inform our reactions to certain topics. The first one is care-harm. It's an instinct we have. When we see someone being hurt, we instinctively want to help them. It's the experience of sympathy towards individuals who are in harm or suffering. We are often driven to care for those in need. Now, I'd like you to think about these foundations quite generally at first, and then we'll see how they apply to our community. So the second moral foundation is liberty oppression. This is our instinct for autonomy and freedom. It is a strong drive to overthrow bullies and tyrants who try to exercise too much authority over individuals. The third is fairness cheating. This is about the law of reciprocity. As soon as someone tries to get their share without putting in their work, we will likely see them as dishonest and immoral and won't continue working with them. But being fair breeds cohesion and trust. The fourth foundation is loyalty, betrayal. This helps us to form strong relationships and see beyond ourselves as just individuals. When a group is centred around a common cause, it can accomplish a lot more than a group which is less uniform and cohesive. The fifth moral foundation is authority subversion. We have a desire for social order and hierarchy. In certain situations, we like people to have more authority than others, because this tends to benefit everyone, especially when based on knowledge, experience and merit. And the final moral foundation is sanctity, degradation. This is our instinct to keep certain things pure and sacred. Much of our morality today elevates this natural instinct to a more symbolic level. For example, where thousands of years ago people saw idols as sacred, we have elevated that natural instinct to a more symbolic level, where... Certain topics or social norms are seen as sacred. So, those are the moral foundations. Just to recap, it's care harm, liberty oppression, fairness cheating, loyalty betrayal, authority subversion, and sanctity degradation. Now, it can be argued that the liberal moral matrix is based on the core value of care for victims of oppression and less, if at all, on loyalty to a group, authority, and sanctity. The conservative moral matrix, however, is based on preserving institutions and traditions to sustain a moral community, meaning you're more likely to balance all six of those foundations in order to preserve the community over helping the individual or minority. So the liberal appeals to the first three moral foundations, whereas the conservative will balance those first three moral foundations uh, of care, harm, liberty, oppression, fairness, cheating, with other things like loyalty and betrayal, authority and subversion, sanctity and degradation. Now, what we can also understand from moral foundations theory is that an individual's moral matrix around a particular topic is first intuitive. It's based on their upbringing, on their life events, and at what stage in life they're at. It is also continually confirmed by their group. And similar to taste buds, it's extremely unlikely that you can change another person's moral matrix by force feeding them. In short, people don't choose to be either liberal or conservative. It's a matrix that is made up from their entire lives and what they've been through till now. It is important to understand how these moral matrices affect the discussions we have around a subject like sexuality, for example, because it can trigger the sacred values of both groups, resulting in a moral disgust it is hard for either party to get past. So, moving on. What do liberal and conservative moral matrices look like in the Christadelphian community? We can only approach this question stereotypically, which means the picture painted is going to be crude and shows the extremes of a spectrum. It's important, remember, not to use this to label people or ecclesias, based on your assumptions about them. It's one thing to be okay with someone having a different moral matrix to you. It is another to try and understand why other matrices exist. We often think of the ecclesia as a training ground for the kingdom, a place where we learn love and gentleness amongst a group brought together by God in order to get along. Yet, if we polarise our ecclesias and create cliques, The healthy tension between left and right, liberal and conservative, is lost, along with the practice of convivial discussion, which gets outsourced sometimes to the internet, where anonymity and facelessness can breed a very bitter and angry conversation. I'm going to set out, in my view, how the conservative liberal view of scripture and the ecclesia fit under each of the moral foundations. It is important to note that these things are intended to reflect intuitions triggered by a particular topic. I'm going to set this list out so that listeners can begin to understand, not challenge, the makeup of others. It has been shown that an individual will only change through personal reflection after non-confrontational and gentle dialogue with people they feel safe with and who have listened to and understood them. Okay, so now I have the challenge of trying to convert a written table into a podcast. I'm going to start with the foundation, and then the conservative view in relation to scripture on that foundation, and then the liberal view. Now, as we work through this list, you're going to have instinctive reactions as the topics I talk about will touch on your moral taste buds. This will make you either feel uncomfortable or those tastes will be good and you'll think, yes, I agree with that. So just be aware of your own reactions as we go through this list. So starting with care, harm, the experience of sympathy towards individuals who are suffering. So the conservative view of uh, care in relation to the scripture would suggest that the scripture promotes care within the brotherhood first and spiritual welfare as a priority over, or at least alongside, physical care. A liberal view of care in the scripture would be that the scriptures promote care for the minority groups and the poorest of society, regardless of their membership to the Christadelphians, um, and there would be a physical care first, then spiritual. And I'm sure as you listen to this, you can maybe think of different scriptures that uh, apply to these different interpretations so liberty oppression a conservative view of liberty in the scriptures would suggest the scriptures show freedom in christ from condemnation they show a freedom to challenge others about scriptural things according to matthew 18 verse 15 uh, and a freedom from the oppression of wrong doctrine we have a right to find the truth The liberal view of liberty in the scripture would suggest the scriptures say that there is freedom in Christ from condemnation, uh, that it promotes an autonomous spiritual journey with God and that we are free from the oppression of tradition. Now, a conservative view on the fairness cheating foundation in the scriptures would suggest the scriptures show God judges righteously. That, uh, for example, the virgins with lamps trimmed and waiting, they will enter the kingdom, while those who don't, won't. And because God has judged this, it's fair. It suggests that we must forgive, but ensure a changed behaviour. A liberal view of the Fairness Cheating Foundation suggests the scriptures show God judges righteously, but we should not judge others. We should forgive as we are forgiven up to 70 times 7. A conservative view of the loyalty betrayal foundation in scripture would suggest that the Bible shows that you should be loyal to traditional Christadelphian interpretations because the Bible can be interpreted by itself, and that's what we do. That we should have loyalty despite confusing passages or new understanding Those things will make sense in the kingdom and will be rewarded for holding fast and being loyal to those traditional views. The liberal understanding of the loyalty foundation with regard to scripture shows that scripture allows us to explore interpretations even outside of traditional Christadelphian ideas. Christadelphian ideas are not objective. Liberals are happy to not be fixed on any one interpretation but allow for discussion and debate and allow for their ideas to be changed. A conservative view of the authority of Scripture would show that Scripture is God-breathed. It is the final word on any topic. It is authoritative, historically accurate. Any opposing views to that are subverting God and his authority. And any apparent contradictions that we find in the Bible are able to be synthesized with um, enough study, or we will know in the kingdom. The liberal view on the authority of scripture suggests that the Bible is a starting point for discussion. That essentially Jesus and the spirit with which he did things is a higher authority than the scripture itself, the book of the Bible. A liberal could accept contradictions as part of cultural context or human authorship. It's understood that God speaks through the Bible, but God is bigger than the Bible. A conservative view of the sanctity of scripture would be that it is inerrant and unchanged. It is inspired, so every word is sacred. Any opposing view to that is unclean and should be steered away from. The liberal view of sanctity in regards to the Bible suggests that it's a human document with cultural context, Yet God's spirit moves through it, pointing to Jesus and a spirit of love. And the spirit of the word trumps the actual physicality of the word in places where there is an apparent dissonance between ideas. Okay, so there we go. And let me reiterate, that is a broad stereotypical idea of the left and right of Christadelphia. There are of course many nuanced opinions in between those and I'm sure you could think of other ways of framing that and using different traits to understand the differences. It's not intended to be divisive but to help people understand how each of those moral foundations applies to the formulation of, of the idea of scripture amongst more liberal and conservative perspectives i hope you can also see how the moral foundations theory helps form a understanding of someone's perspectives in each of those categories so my plan was to next do the same thing but with the moral foundations relating to the ecclesia uh i that is going to be available i'm going to park it at the end of this podcast though uh, so it doesn't become tedious going round each of the foundations all over again there will also be a link to the notes and the full table um, somewhere on the page, wherever you have found this podcast. So next we're going to look at how this works in practice, because what often happens when a challenging discussion happens within an ecclesia is that one person appeals to a particular foundation that the other does not hold in as high a regard or uses but uses to balance with other instincts. For example, imagine the following scenario where someone with a strong care-harm, liberty-oppression and fairness-cheating foundation may start a debate about sexuality with someone that has a more balanced intuition across all six moral foundations in this way. Person A. Homosexuals are marginalised and oppressed by the community and it harms them. Person B may respond, but God's word clearly states homosexuality is an abomination to God. So it's not that person B has no care-harm foundation to appeal to, it is that they are appealing to the authority-subversion foundation that balances their own personal view. What person B does, however, is shift the argument away from the care-harm foundation to the authority-subversion foundation, a foundation that person A is likely to have less dependence on or be persuaded by. In fact, person A will most likely begin to now question the authority of person B's traditional interpretation of scripture, leading to person B feeling as though person A is undermining the entire moral makeup of the Bible and the community. Still, person A's issue around the care-harm foundation has not been addressed. Quite quickly, we can see that both people have denigrated the most sacred core values held by the other person. Person A feels that person B has zero care for victims of oppression, and person B feels that person A has no intention of preserving the institution and tradition of the community to sustain moral cohesion. So what should we do? Personally, I feel, first, we need to understand the moral foundation that the person starting the debate is appealing to. We need to listen and validate that person's concerns and how important it is to them and to discuss it on those terms first. We are then able to open up the discussion to consider the other moral foundations, foundations that we are equally going to have to understand that person's perspective on. Remember, be aware as to why you have entered into this debate. Are you hoping to correct someone, or to understand their perspective? Are you able to consider you might learn something new? What does Jesus do? I'd like to appeal to how Jesus handles two situations one on the road to Emmaus and one in the temple. Now, I am aware that my perspective on these passages has a particular leaning or bias, so please take that into account. Interestingly, having shared this idea with some of my friends, I have already been shown where my perspective has blinded me to some of the realities of the text, and the following is edited to hopefully be more balanced, a case in point of how these principles can aid our understanding. Two disciples are heading away from Jerusalem on the third day after the crucifixion, and Jesus appears to them, but they don't perceive who he is. He travels by their side away from Jerusalem. He travels with them in the wrong direction. He listens to their concern and he admittedly calls them fools and slow of heart, but then he shows them that all these things had to happen from the scriptures. He then shares in fellowship with them and reveals himself as Jesus. Without telling them what they must do next, they get up of their own volition and return to where they should be. We are prone to see ourselves in the role of Jesus in our own situations, but we have to be aware that we could also be living out the role of the two disciples. But the amazing thing here is, Jesus walks with them in the wrong direction. He does not stand and call after them whilst they're heading in the wrong direction, and call them fools. He only does so after walking alongside them. Now, we might well say that Jesus got very angry at points when refuting others and looked to Jesus' turning of the tables in the temple as a mandate to sharply chastise and rebuke one another. One way to interpret Jesus' actions in the temple, by N.T. Wright, however, is that they were done to pass judgment on a corrupted, bureaucratic system, and he passed that judgment in a way that clearly signified, in the cultural context, his kingship, and his subsequent establishment of a new temple. See, N.T. writes The Challenge of Jesus Intervarsity Press, pages 62-67. to 67. If this is correct, it follows that, if we think we can do likewise, then we are claiming a kingship that is not ours to reach out and grasp. We end up setting ourselves up as kings over one another, something only Jesus had the right and power to do. The rest of his ministry goes on to show us that our king wishes us to become servants and serve one another in order to claim a place in that kingdom. It is true that Jesus spent considerable time provoking his religious opponents. He told them plainly that they'd completely missed the point of the scriptures they thought they followed. John 5 verse 39. He gave them a really hard time, usually doing so in public. It often feels like Jesus was actively winding them up. And let's not whitewash those aspects of Christ in the text. They're there, so they matter. That doesn't mean that we should be liberally provoking each other, far from it, but it does mean that Christ treated the recalcitrants and belligerents differently to how he treated the ordinary people who wanted to hear what he had to say. And none of this should really be any surprise. We're all different and have different modes of communication we naturally employ. However, our high calling is to love one another as I have loved you. If we kept that in mind, we would spend more time listening, more time understanding, and more time finding common ground. Okay, so after applying these principles to our challenging topics and our discussions around them, where does it leave us? We may rightly deduce that it leaves us at kind of a stalemate, where we are just accepting two or more different perspectives. Yes, we've understood them, we know where they're coming from, but surely we need to have some sort of unity. Surely the authority of the scriptures will trump other moral foundations. Or conversely, perhaps the Care Foundation trumps all other foundations because it is most in line with the spirit of what jesus did and taught our next episode is going to focus on this issue i will hopefully be releasing one episode every month so if you have any ideas or input on this question i'd love to hear from you equally if you have any feedback from this episode please get in touch at from the platform at gmail.com i hope this podcast has been useful and explores some things and sets out some things in a way that make challenging topics easier to approach and provide a platform for. I think what would be useful is if you took each of the challenging topics you might be facing, whether that's uh, sexuality, women's roles, politics, and you list them under the moral foundation's to see how they touch on each one of those six taste buds in order to understand where people's perspectives and viewpoints are going to come from. This is what we'll probably be doing in the next few uh, podcasts in this series after maybe a few other discussions. Thank you very much for listening to this first episode. Um, Following on shortly will be the moral foundations in relation to conservative liberal approaches to the ecclesia but i'm going to say goodbye and thank you very much at this point um please subscribe and share it with anybody you think might find this useful and take care thank you very much right so next we're going to do the same thing but with the foundations relating to the ecclesia and how to function in the ecclesia. These are going to be closely related to the perspective on scripture, but it's just interesting to see the nuances between the actual issues the ecclesias deal with. So within the Care Harm Foundation, the conservative view of the ecclesia is that it should care for the brotherhood first, put spiritual welfare first, And prayer and gathering together are very healthy things to do. The liberal view of the ecclesia would maybe have more empathy for outcasts, for the LBGTQ plus community, for divorcees, for the disenfranchised, etc. There is a strong pastoral emphasis that sometimes extends outside of the membership of the group. Uh, Group prayer is also very important. Within the Liberty Oppression Foundation, the conservative view of the Ecclesia is that there should be liberty from wrong doctrine, they should be autonomous from mainstream Christianity, and members should sacrifice their individual liberty for the cohesion of the group. The liberal view of the Ecclesia is that they should throw off the oppression of tradition and formality, and that everyone should be working out their own salvation with a degree of autonomy that sits within a tolerant family that is there for them when they need them. Within the Fairness Cheating Foundation, the conservative view of the ecclesia is that divorcees, homosexuals and non-conformists have in some way cheated those who have stayed loyal in their own marriages or in celibacy or in conformity for the good of the group. They'd expect all to perform an ecclesial duty set out in rotas, unless perhaps physical health denies this. The liberal view of the ecclesia would be that, actually, there are a few that unfairly bear the burdens of the whole ecclesia. Some in the ecclesia will not pull their weight, but they probably have their reasons, perhaps something we don't know about. The liberal ecclesia would be balancing structure with flexibility and informality because there will be those who need that flexibility and informality in order to feel comfortable there. In the Loyalty Betrayal Foundation, the conservative view of the Ecclesia would be that they are in the truth, that there is a legitimate threat of disfellowship over anybody who would become divorced, practice homosexuality or not conform to the Ecclesia. They would live close to the ecclesia, though, and there would be good attendance in supporting fraternals, campaigns, any exhibitions, Bible classes and exhortations. However, these ecclesias are shrinking in size. The liberal view of the ecclesia is that the ecclesia will ebb and flow in size and engagement as a natural process of people coming and going. Disfellowship is rarely threatened, uh, divorced and remarried members are welcome as members after some sort of consultation. Those of the LGBTQ plus community are welcome in theory, but this probably doesn't happen in practice. Under the Authority Subversion Foundation, a conservative view of the ecclesia would be that scripture is authoritative, the arranging brothers make the decisions. Sisters are silent in exhortations in Bible class and possibly business meetings. Head coverings are required. There are formal baptismal interviews. There will be a constitution for the ecclesia referencing the statement of faith. They would revere founders and the Christadelphian editors in the community. The ecclesia would continue with public lectures despite the fact that probably nobody actually goes, and those lectures would provide answers and discussion is relatively unnecessary. The liberal ecclesia would have more delegated authority. Members would be asked to take ownership of ecclesial activities. Head coverings would be optional and sisters would take part in discussion and reading and in some cases speaking. Discussions are encouraged, not necessarily conclusions. In the Sanctity and Degregation Foundation, a conservative ecclesia would consider the resurrection as sacred, the authority of scripture and inerrancy unquestionable. There would be certain formalities, dress codes, ceremonies and gender roles that couldn't be questioned. They would reject the sanctity of the cross and icons and mainstream ritual the liberal ecclesia hold the resurrection and words of jesus as sacred care for others regardless of membership is unquestionable rejection of traditional sanctity in the form of formalities and structure is seen as a barrier to some